0: Conspiracy show with Richard Seren. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV camper, taxi, your parents' rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, the podcast, of course, the Conspiracy Show app, the Zoomer radio app. Uh, Those of you who watch us on the YouTube live stream, and please subscribe if you haven't already done so. All of you in the uh, YouTube live chat, I haven't forgotten about you, and I uh, I, you're there dutifully every week, and uh, we love you. Thank you so much. However and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Hey, have you subscribed to my new podcast yet? Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop three times a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. And I have another new podcast. Uh, this one has been in the works for a very long time. Uh, we're uh, we're launching very soon, I promise, on Westwood One and the Jericho Network. Chris Jericho from the WWE. So that's happening very soon, likely within a few weeks. I can't give you an actual date yet uh, until we have a few technical things ...sorted, but I will make a formal announcement very soon. Maybe I'll get Chris Jericho on the show to help me with that. So if you like rock and roll and you like the paranormal and conspiracies, you're going to love this new podcast. So stay tuned for that as well. My next guest is a professional science communicator who has figured out the science of Star Trek. Faster-than-light spacecraft, holographic crew members, and phasers set to stun. There are over 25 iconic inventions from the Star Trek television and film universe... We're going to explore some of these dazzling technologies and their role in Star Trek, the science behind how they work, and how close we are to achieving them in the real world today. Ethan Siegel, Ph.D., born in New York, majored in three different things as an undergrad, and got his Ph.D. in theoretical physics. After postdoctoral research focusing on dark matter and cosmic structure formation... In a number of teaching stints, he became a physics professor at Lewis and Clark College and a professional science communicator. He regularly appears on television and radio spots, teaching the world about the latest news and discoveries in science. He's now focusing on writing and speaking full-time. His work has appeared in Discovery, Scientific American, The Wall Street Journal, Esquire, ESPN.com, Medium, Science Blogs, and NASA's The Space Place. His blog starts with a bang. Is currently hosted on Forbes and was voted the number one science blog on the internet by the Institute of Physics, Real Clear Science, and uh, won the People's Choice Award from Physics.org. His uh, first two books, Beyond the Galaxy and Technology, are available. Well, just about wherever books are sold. Ethan Siegel, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic.
0: Now I'm uh, I'm kind of old school. I like the original series. I'm not a next generation guy. However, Captain Kirk did a wonderful series, William Shatner did a wonderful series talking also about the you know some of the technology and so forth, but this book really focuses on things that you have researched and, and have sort of figured out theoretically, I guess, how they could work one day.
1: This is the whole thing that threw me for a loop when the idea for this book came along, is when Star Trek came out, so many of these technologies that we had been envisioning, that we had been thinking of, some of them... Even though we had thought this was going to be 300 years in the future, in just 50 years from when the original series aired to what was then the present day, many of those technologies are not only so old hat that right. they don't seem futuristic anymore, but they've been wildly surpassed
0: That's by the, modern
1: technology.
0: Yeah, like the um, communicator. It's a cell phone. <laughs>
1: Oh, and the cell phone goes so far beyond that. The cell yes. phone co- incorporates ideas of, like, a tablet touchscreen computer. The idea in the original series that you could speak in a voice-activated way to a ship and have it compute things for you and then give you the results back in plain English or whatever your natural language is, right. that was that was some real science fiction. And now you talk to your phone and you talk to Siri, and Siri's 10 years old. Um, So a lot of these things that we thought were going to be super futuristic, they're already here. Yeah, we still have things to look forward to, like warp drives and transporters and tractor beams. But in a lot of cases, these are not super-futuristic technologies that maybe someday they'll be theoretically possible. These are technologies, for the most part, with only a few exceptions, that we're already testing in the lab, building prototypes of, and in some cases, even testing them on humans.
0: Yeah, I, I always wondered, um, I don't know if you would care to speculate, whether Gene Roddenberry, I don't know, whether, he was tapped into something, whether he, whether he knew some people in, some, you know... Uh, uh, research and development at some lab that were maybe leaking some stuff to him, what do you think?
1: you know a big part of being a science fiction writer, and i, I 'm lucky enough that i 've gotten to know a whole bunch of them. I, I myself stick to stick to mainstream science, but but when I speak to people who do science fiction, a lot of them have wild imaginations, but a lot of them also have really strong science background mm. and a willingness to go talk with cutting edge scientists, engineers, um, people with the background, people on the cutting edge and ask them, hey, what's going on with this? What's possible for this? What's What are the leading ideas for this? What are people working on? And so a lot of the things are based in science. If you're an original series fan. Uh, then I'm betting you saw the original Star Trek movies when they came out, like Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home.
0: Um, oh, I, I'm glad I you mentioned think- the Roy- I'm glad you mentioned The Voyage Home. That that is a lot of uh, people's favor. That's number four, right?
1: It is Star uh, Trek four.
0: Yeah, that's the the invisible aluminum armor is the one that, that jumps out at me from that uh, that, yeah, that one. Yeah,
1: and there's a whole chapter in my book on transparent aluminum. So first off, when they were writing that. Um, they knew that transparent aluminum was a military technology that people were working on at the time ah. that it has a name known as Allon A L O N yes. that was that was sort of the code name for transparent aluminum and if you've ever heard of sidewinder missiles these are heat seeking missiles the way they work is they leverage transparent aluminum they use that transparent property of the aluminum to allow that infrared light, the heat, you know, which we we know is infrared light, to pass through the missile casing and that's how it can track a direction of if I'm gonna seek heat, what direction am I going in? That's that's why you need transparent aluminum. But in the meantime we've now used it for bulletproof glass and it's three times thicker and denser than even even the hardiest glass we've used. So it is. they already knew this is a technology under development, and now, here in 2018, we know this is not just a developing technology, this is a technology that's entering widespread use.
0: Ah, and, and for those who don't maybe remember uh, Star Trek for The Voyage Home, this is where they are transporting two humpback whales to the Earth of their time, and uh in order to to bring them aboard the spaceship, basically they have to build a uh, a tank, and they got to replace uh, what like six inch thick plexiglass with uh, this aluminum um, transparent aluminum, which is like uh, what uh, one inch instead of six inches. So uh, yeah, they
1: need it to be harder and denser and and more concentrated and robust, and transparent aluminum. Is actually a thing that we have today. The only real difference from what Star Trek envisioned to what we have is, you know, if you if you look at the molecular structure from the Star Trek screen that they've got displayed on a you know 1984 Apple computer, um, the the chemical structure we use today is a little bit different from what they envisioned. But it's pretty hard to knock a series for envisioning exactly the type of technology that just a few years later is brought to fruition and is becoming widespread throughout the world. They're not going to get all the details right. They can't. Otherwise, it wouldn't need real science. We would just hire science fiction writers to develop all our new technologies.
0: Ethan Siegel is with us, theoretical physicist, and we are talking about the science of Star Trek. Uh, it seems like not, a, not an episode went by when Bones McCoy wasn't um, giving someone a shot of some sort of a space vaccine. Uh, they called it hypospray, um, and it's kind of a, a hypodermic injection of, of medication. Um, I don't know if you talk about this at all in, in your in your book, but um, um, anything out there now or on the horizon that, that might um, be similar to hypospray?
1: You know, it's really interesting. The older listeners out there will likely remember that they probably got vaccinated at one point via a jet injector. Hmm. And the hypospray is totally based on a jet injector where you take this stream of air, you use it to pierce the skin, and then you put in a little fluid trail of whatever you're trying to vaccinate with, that little fluid trail goes right into where you pierce the skin, Ah. and lo and behold, you're all of a sudden full of vaccine and good to go. Now, the reality is, you know, when you have a massive, life-threatening illness, This is the fastest way to do it. They set a vaccination record vaccinating tens of millions of people in a span of weeks when a certain strain of, I believe, swine flu or bird flu hit in the 1970s. So people who lived in the United States during that time, I think it was around 75, might remember going through something like that. The whole issue with that, though, the reason why we use needles instead of this jet injector is there's really no way to prevent contamination. There's no way to prevent when you make that injection, when you pierce the skin, to prevent someone's bodily fluids, including their blood, ah flashing back onto the nozzle apologies
0: Ethan, Ethan i got to jump in here we're going to take a time we'll come back and we'll oh, pick up sorry. on no worries we'll pick up on hypo spray and a tractor beams seems like we're getting close on that front back with more of my conversation with Ethan Siegel the science of Star Trek right here on The Conspiracy Show providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett welcome back this is fun Ethan Siegel is with us, theoretical physicist, and uh, we are talking about the science of Star Trek. And uh, his book is uh, *Treknology*. Uh, and uh, he's a, a Ph.D., theoretical physicist, and a, a science blogger, an award-winning science blogger. Uh, just before the break, sorry for the interruption, but we were talking about um, uh, these hypo sprays. And I think you had a, a few points you wanted to finish up. The reason that they're not in, in, in great use is because of the threat of, of contamination. Was there something else you wanted to add before we move to tractor beams?
1: Well, I'd just love to tell people that this was a big problem with hypo sprays in the past. But one of the things I'm very excited about, because a lot of people are afraid of needles, and, and patient noncompliance because you're afraid of shots or your kids are afraid of needles is a really big deal. If you can overcome that that's worth investing in. And so at MIT labs, what they're working on is they're working on a way to have a reusable jet injector that doesn't need a replaceable nozzle that will fire with exactly the right amount of pressure so that it will in fact completely eliminate any chance of cross-contamination. So even though this was a technology that we had, that we abandoned, there's a push to bring it back. And if they can overcome these obstacles, It'll be something that we'll see again in our lifetimes.
0: All right. Uh, now, tractor beams is interesting. Of course, right now, if an astronaut, you know, needs to make a, a repair to a satellite or, let's say, the Hubble Space Telescope, they've got to do those very dangerous. They, you know, they're tethered to the uh, the space shuttle or whatever, and do these. It's a very dangerous exercise, really. Uh, but in science fiction, of course, spaceships like the Enterprise, they they uh, they snatch each other up using these tractor beams. And I was reading something recently, I think it was the University of Bristol uh, where they 're experimenting with something called an acoustic tractor beam, but it, anyway, it seems like we 're on the road to actually realizing tractor beams
1: there are it's fascinating really there are a few different approaches but my favorite one doesn't even use acoustics which are sound waves but instead uses photons it uses light waves and this is really fascinating to me because it doesn't need a medium it doesn't need the medium of air to work in it can work in the vacuum of space what they've discovered you can do is with multiple different laser beams coherent light in different directions Because light is an electromagnetic wave, right, it has electric fields and magnetic fields that move perpendicular to the light, that if you shine the light with very specific properties and have it converge in a certain point, it can effectively pin matter to that point, where if you tried to move it side to side or forward and back, it would exert a force that kept you in place. And as long as you weren't able, as that trapped particle, to exert a big enough force to overcome those electric and magnetic fields, you wouldn't be able to go anywhere. Then what they can do is they can tune where those laser beams converge, and they can drag you, the pinned objects, they can drag you towards you. They can drag you towards them, so that's a way to actually pin something in place and bring it in nice and slow and controlled. And that's really wonderful because this technology... It not only works in the vacuum of space, but we're not talking about single atoms or microscopic, like, single-celled animals. They've already gotten this to work on macroscopic, like, visible-sized objects. It's really just a question of scaling it up at this point.
0: So we, we could uh, see, what, within our lifetime or th- in our children's lifetime, uh, the ability to levitate heavy objects here on Earth with such a device?
1: You know, I wouldn't count that out at all. When you talk about how fast technology has developed, I think I think one of the fantastic things we're looking at is um, you say, hey, all we have to do is scale this up, scale the power up, find the right way to do this, to implement this without harming the target, and I think we'll see that happen.
0: Amazing, amazing. I want to talk to you about uh, uh, phasers. Of course, like stun guns, I think they were using electricity, you know, to, to control cattle, like over a hundred years ago, maybe even the the, the the late 19th century. So, some sort of version of a phaser has been around for a very long time, and we've ha- we have had stun guns probably since what the early 1970s. But where are we in the development of an actual, you know, a phaser type weapon that you could set to stun?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you say phasers, and people say, well, we have tasers, and sure, yeah, we do, but, but a taser isn't what I want. What I want from a phaser, realistically, and, and this is something that could potentially have a real positive impact on society, when you think about, when you think about how deadly gun shootings are in, in the hand of law enforcement or in the hands of civilians, um, if there were some way to effectively, at a distance, disable a target without causing physical harm, that would just be that would be such a boon to society in so many ways. Yes. And the military over the last ten years has actually been working on this. So this is completely different than a taser. You don't need to make electrical contact and and pump electricity through something and that's how you theoretically disable someone. Instead, what the military has developed is a two-phase plasma pulse. And let me tell you how this works, is this first pulse is what we call ultraviolet light. Now, you know light comes in all sorts of different wavelengths. We have visible light that we can see, and then we have shorter wavelengths like ultraviolet light that'll give you a sunburn, but but can ionize atoms. It can knock electrons off of atoms and molecules. And then you have the lower wavelength stuff, things like infrared radiation or microwave radiation That's that's heat-based or that causes molecules to rotate. These are longer wavelengths. We can't see either one, but they're very important for what they do. So now let's take a look at what this two-phase pulse is. The first phase is an ultraviolet pulse. So when it hits the target, and this is very collimated like a laser, when it hits the target, it creates, by kicking those electrons off, a small amount of ionized plasma. The ultraviolet light by itself, this first pulse by itself, it isn't enough plasma to burn anything or harm anything. It just creates some ionized particles over there. Then that second pulse, though, this is high-energy infrared or microwave light. The worst you'd ever feel from it if it struck you was just it would get warm. It would feel like heat. But if it strikes that plasma, the place where the first pulse went, the plasma is going to absorb all of that energy. And when you have particles that absorb a lot of energy in a really short amount of time, they heat up. They heat up and they expand. And in the real world, that means if I fire this two-phase pulse at you and the first pulse hits you in the chest, you know, maybe your shirt or your skin will have some of the molecules on it ionized. So there'll be some nuclei that are ions and there'll be some free electrons. Then that second pulse comes in and all of a sudden that plasma is going to heat up and expand and that's going to make a concussive explosion that will knock you off your feet and will possibly knock you out, knock you unconscious, but that won't be with lethal force. It won't have a chance of killing you. So in many ways, it's even safer than like rubber bullets or a taser because sometimes people do react negatively to those. So for me, the fact that we've made a prototype, and look, I'm not going to pretend this is just a handheld device. At this point, it's big enough that it needs to be vehicle-mounted. Right. But the fact that we've made this device, this gives me so much hope that someday we may have a plasma gun, a plasma rifle, uh, even a plasma handgun that can do this exact thing, that can disable a target from up to a mile and a half or two kilometers away without any risk of lethal force.
0: Wow. Um, although you know, um, with with all technologies, you know, there's always the risk of it falling into the wrong hands. I mean, we want the good guys to have this. <laughs> we don't want the uh, the terrorists to have this, and so forth.
1: You know, that's a that's a huge issue, and I I don't want to pretend that this is not something worth addressing because I write about this in almost every chapter of the book as well. Um, Star Trek is famous, and if you're a fan of the original series, you must have loved this. Not just for the technology, but for making sure that it's used ethically. Star Trek always puts these huge internal battles right. between right and wrong, and what's the right way to use this and get this out? And the technology, if I can tell you that I'm most worried about it, and I'm sorry to bust into the next generation here, <laughs> but next generation fans will really uh, remember iconically Geordi LaForge's visor. Right. Geordi is blind from birth, and he has these implants in his temples. He hooks a visor up into that, and all of a sudden, these signals that his visor picks up go through his temples into his optic nerve and gets transmitted to his brain so he can see without having working eyes. Well, in real life, There's a group at Monash University in Australia that's developed a technology called a hat pack, where you wear this, you know, basically this large hat on your head. But what they do is, rather than going through your temples, they put a chip, an implant, into your brain's visual cortex. And this hat that picks up visual signals wirelessly sends them to your brain, and all of a sudden, You can do it. You can see wavelengths beyond what human eyes can see. And you don't even need eyes or optic nerves to see it. It goes straight to your brain. And you say, wow, what a wonderful advance. It can restore sight to the blind. And I say, yes. But what happens when someone hacks into the chip in your head? What happens when someone starts sending you false information about your own senses and what they tell you about the world around you. What would it do if the road curves to your left and you're driving and someone sends your brains a signal to tell you to turn the wheel to the right? Off the cliff you go and that's the end of you. You're thinking about... Technology in a vacuum is only good for the technology's sake. When it comes to how to implement it for humans, you have to think about how can we make it safe and effective and ensure that it'll be used for good and not evil.
0: Uh, precisely yeah that's a huge challenge um, we are coming up on a break but we'll start I want to start talking about the universal translator if we could for a moment um, you know there're all this planet hopping going on in this series and and yet they managed to communicate with all of the indigenous inhabitants of these of these planets and they're using uh, this universal translator uh, now at, at home we use Babel and some people use Rosetta stone but that's not what we're talking about here uh, how close are we to to uh, having a, uh, a truly a universal translator?
1: Well, it's really incredible. I don't know if you got a chance to see the video of the Google Pixel 2 demo that they did last year. They had someone plug in their smartphone to an earpiece, and another person with the same Google Pixel phone plug into their earpiece. The first guy speaks to the woman in Swedish, and in less than two seconds, she hears what he spoke in her ears in English. And she speaks back into her phone in English and he hears two seconds later the translated version of that in Swedish. There is no intermediary there. It's just the computer. The key is if you understand both languages well enough and how they go back and forth to each other, you can do this. You can have a universal translator right here and now.
0: That's remarkable! <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, this is uh, this is an absolutely amazing discussion. Ethan Siegel is with us, and we're talking about the science of Star Trek, and uh, the book is called *Treknology*. Treknology. Uh, how th- that book must just be uh, insanely popular. Uh, how is that doing for you?
1: You know, as far as I can tell, um, it's. You know, obviously, if you haven't picked up a copy and you're thinking about picking up a copy, I, I strongly recommend it. Not just from like an author's perspective, but from a fan's perspective, um, there are over a hundred full color images from all of the original Star Trek series. We have 28 separate technologies featured in there, and it is it is a feast for the eyes and for the mind. Um, so it's selling pretty well. Um, it's got excellent reviews. You can check it out anywhere reviews are had, like on Amazon. Um, but but oh, like if you if you don't have a copy and you're a fan of Star Trek, science fiction, or futuristic technology, this is the book for you.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, I guess we got a couple of minutes before the break. I want to just throw this one out there. We mentioned the Voyage Home, which was episode four. And I'd have to say admittedly my least favorite episode was uh episode 3 The Search for Spock. Uh however, there was one cool thing and that was the torpedo coffin. Of course this is where they uh, the beloved Mr. Spock is uh um basically, you know, they they place his body in in a uh, in a coffin and they fire it out of this torpedo bay uh and he lands on this uh, on this barren planet which is about to undergo this, you know, Rejuvenation and so forth because of the Genesis project but torpedo coffins um, when we might when might we see those? Oh
1: I mean that so that's interesting because I do write about photon torpedoes in the book mm-hmm. but I don't write about torpedo coffins I, I do mention that they use the torpedo casing as a coffin but really the the only thing keeping us from having torpedo coffins is the fact that, it's expensive to launch coffins or anything to space. I, I have a strong hope that our buddy Elon Musk is going to help us out with that, um, and that if you wanted your body or the body of your loved ones launched into space upon death, that this might be a routine thing that we see coming up this century.
0: The Star Trek coffin. All right, we'll take a time out, We'll come back with Ethan Siegel, theoretical physicist Trechnology right here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll also open up the phone lines, questions and comments for Ethan. All you Trekkies, phone lines now open. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Ethan Siegel stays with us. How can people um, listen to the uh, the science blog, your award-winning science blog, Ethan?
1: Well, the you know, it's a blog, so you, you have to read it. Oh, sorry, read it. My read apologies. It, uh, yeah. The easiest way to do it is Google Starts with a Bang or head on over to Forbes.com slash sites slash Starts with a Bang, and you can see new articles from me about six times a week.
0: Excellent. And I
1: did want to tell you, you know, you had asked about burial in space. Yes. Uh, people are actually sending up remains samples of themselves into space. You know who the first human being was to have their remains sent to space?
0: Uh, it was
1: Gene Roddenberry. Ah,
0: it, makes on sense. On October
1: 22, 1992, they launched his remains aboard Space Shuttle Columbia, and they left it in low Earth orbit, where it continues to orbit today.
0: Ah, wow, I can't believe it's been 20, over 25 years since he passed. I do want to get around to warp speed, of course, and transporters. One of the handy uh, scientific tools that appeared almost in every episode was that it reminds me of the old realistic tape recorders we used to have, and, of course, Spock had it over his shoulder, and he would use it to detect everything from oxygen levels and so forth, and that was the tricorder.
1: So oh, yeah
0: what do we have now or or how far are we along the road to getting one of these tricorders
1: well you'll remember that tricorders had a lot of different functions when they first started right
0: yeah it could a be medical or engineering it could, yeah.
1: could be for weather or it could be for detecting like ge- geological things um, or it could be for scanning humans and it's really that latter function that we've been focusing on is is how can we have a tiny, lightweight, medical diagnostic device that would be non-invasive that can tell us all sorts of important things. And in theory, this is possible because if you can tell, you know, from someone's breath what their oxygen levels are doing, um, you can learn something about that. From their uh, from an infrared sensor, you can learn what their body temperature is. from So from all sorts of these remote things, You can learn to, what are their vital signs? What is their blood pressure? You can also learn more intricate things like, does this person have cancer? Is their immune system elevated? What's, What's going on inside of them? Well, they've developed, you know, over the last decade, they've had a series of devices where they've had a competition for, can you make a single handheld device that can perform all these sorts of functions and tests uh, on a person without being invasive, and can you do it in a handheld device that weighs less than five pounds? Well, this was called the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize, <laughs> and sure enough, last year they issued the award to I love this Final Frontier Lab.
0: Of course, <laughs> made a
1: prototype. That was able in under five pounds, so in under about you know two and a half kilograms, they were able to make this single device that could measure and check for twelve independent vital signs and disease markers, um, and and yep, and that that has been a continued area of development. And how amazing would that be? That you know, if you could go you know to some remote place on an expedition. And if someone were to fall ill, as long as you had one of these tricorder devices with you, uh, you can know what was going on with them. It wouldn't be some mystery illness until you got them to a hospital. This could revolutionize first aid, it could revolutionize field medicine, it could revolutionize health for people who go hiking or backpacking or backwoods camping.
0: I got to tell you, I am pretty excited about the not-too-distant future. I mean, there's so much doom and gloom in the world, but, you know, I think the answers to many of the world's seemingly intractable problems are going to be solved through technology. Uh, I think
1: you're absolutely right. And, you know, this really brings up what we were talking about earlier, too, that technology by itself is neither good nor evil. But if we can use it, I mean, this was the whole spirit of Star Trek, that they envisioned a world hundreds of years in the future were the biggest problems facing humanity today, problems like war and inequality and hunger and 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 you know, all of these huge societal ills, they were solved because we invested in science and technology and we used the fruits of what we learned for the benefit of all of humanity. That is still possible and on my most optimistic days I think that if we work together and we band together and we advocate for this, we can actually make this so. We can have this become our future.
0: Now, this isn't Star Trek, what I was going to mention now, but one of those most depressing problems we often hear about is all of this plastic in the world's oceans. You know, there's enough plastic that you can make an island something like the size of Australia, and the problem is once it breaks down, it's very difficult, you know, to gather up. Then there's this Dutch entrepreneur. I think he's only in his early 20s. And uh, he may have invented a way to clean up our oceans, something like getting rid of, like, 90% of the plastic in the world's oceans. Do you know about this guy? I think it's Boyen Slat or something is his name. You know,
1: I haven't kept up on that. You know, most of the most of the scientists I know who work on uh, marine science, they they tell me that, you know, plastic in the ocean is a really big deal, yeah. but things like the Pacific garbage patch that they talk about yes. is not like an Australia-sized island that people talk about. It's really like a thin layer of, of plastic, you know, degrading molecules, and that, over enough time, sunlight will do a good enough job of breaking that down, that that's not something we, we really need to worry about cleaning up. What we need to worry about are the pollutants we put into the ocean that don't break down or that poison the wildlife in there, and that those should be our primary concerns as far as ocean pollution.
0: True enough, true enough. Let's talk a little bit about warp speed, shall we?
1: Oh, Sure. Let's go right for the big
0: one. Oh, and we'll do that right after this. i got to warp speed out of here. We'll take a quick timeout and uh, come back. Ethan Siegel stays with us, theoretical physicist. And uh, we are talking about technology. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. Ethan Siegel is with us. His award-winning science blog, Starts With a Bang, and uh, I guess the best way is just Google that, and you can put in Forbes as well, because it's on Forbes.com. Starts With a Bang, an award-winning science blog, and we're talking about uh, really the subject of uh, his book, Treknology, The Science of Star Trek, and... I don't ever remember getting kind of a detailed explanation in either the Star Trek series, any of them or the or the uh, the movies exactly how Warp drive works, something about bending you know time and space. but um, is is warp drive even in the cards?
1: You know, it's really wonderful. If you had asked me this question twenty five years ago all i could have done is i could have waved my hands and say well in einstein's general relativity space and time are malleable and so we can't rule it out but i have no idea how we could make it happen and all of that changed in the mid-1990s when a physicist named miguel alcubierre worked out a solution he found a solution to einstein's equations these are the equations that govern space and time where you could travel let's say i want to go from point a to point b and they're 40 light years apart so i've got this star i want to go to it's 40 light years away under einstein's theory conventionally if you're back here on earth and i get in my spaceship if i go really fast to the speed of light really close to it right the cosmic speed limit if i go as close as i can then what i can do is maybe i can make that 40 light year journey in only six months from my frame of reference. And the reason is we have this phenomenon called length contraction. When I travel close to the speed of light, it appears that the space in front of me gets compressed. So that's fine. I travel there six months, I do my thing, I come back six months later, and I'm only gone a year. But for you, back on Earth, 81 years, not one year, but 81 years will have passed. So I can go do my mission, but then that's a big problem for everyone back on Earth because you've aged as normal. So you got to have some way to overcome that. And it wasn't just Star Trek fiction, but the actual laws of Einstein's relativity that allow us to do that. What this guy, what Miguel Alcubierre found, is that if you build the right type of space-time, you, know, you can say, like, okay, I'm going to have the ship in some sort of a bubble, and then I'm going to alter the space-time outside of it. And what I'll do is, instead of moving close to the speed of light and having space appear to contract in front of me, you can actually deform space itself, so that the space in front of you, in the direction you want to move, does compress. But the way you make up for it is the space behind you has to expand by an equal and opposite amount. So if you can find the right energy and the right configuration to get your space to do that, then all of a sudden, you can make that 40 light-year journey in six months. You can come back in six months, and I on my ship will have aged a year, but you back on Earth will also only have aged a year. We can keep time going the way we want, and space going the way we want, by implementing this drive. So then you say, oh, that's real exciting, what do we need to make that happen? And this is where I have to say, well, the solution is real, but it requires the existence of something we haven't yet discovered. And that thing we need to have is some form of either negative mass or negative energy. Right now, we only think we have the positive kind, but there are all sorts of things that aren't ruled out. And if negative mass is real, if negative energy is real, if these things are possible, then warp drive all of a sudden goes from the realm of science fiction into, this is just an engineering question.
0: My word. You know, they don't call you the science communicator for nothing. Uh, I wish I had a science teacher like you when I was in school.
1: Well, a few lucky kids did get to have that, and maybe, uh, maybe a few more will before all is said and done. Uh,
0: so, warp drive, uh, what about antimatter? Is there such a thing?
1: Oh, there absolutely is such a thing as antimatter. In fact, antimatter may be the key to unlocking warp drive. Here's an example. When you, when you have normal matter, you know, whatever it is, like any atom's, if you drop them in a gravitational field, they fall down. Right here on earth they fall down towards the center of the earth at 9.8 meters per second squared. Right. What does antimatter do? Believe it or not, we've never measured it. We believe antimatter and we've made it. We've made antiprotons, anti-electrons, we've brought them together and made neutral anti-hydrogen atoms. We've tested its spectral lines and properties and we've discovered that yep, it behaves just like normal hydrogen just like it's supposed to. What's really fascinating is we've actually confined it and kept it away from matter cuz matter and antimatter annihilate. But if you take your neutral antimatter we've been able to keep it stable for, like, 20 minutes at a time, which is a really big deal. We're not talking tiny, tiny fractions of a second. We're talking, like, real long timescales that you just can have these atoms and stare at them. What direction do anti-atoms fall in a gravitational field? We've never measured it well enough. There's an experiment going on at CERN the same labs where they have the Large Hadron Collider, right. they also have what's called the Alpha Experiment, where they are creating and working to measure the fundamental properties of neutral anti-hydrogen. If it turns out that antimatter falls up in a gravitational field instead of falling down like normal matter does, then all sorts of star trek inspired technologies like warp drive like artificial gravity they become real possibilities that's the last element we need to make these things physically plausible and this could actually happen if antimatter has this property that we haven't yet measured or decided
0: fascinating um my uh, my producer, Albert, wanted me to ask you this. I think it's a great question. And uh, we, we've mentioned Ben Rich on this program a number of times, the the former director of Lockheed Martin's sort of secret uh, pr- uh, program, Skunk Works. And his often repeated line, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but he supposedly said, we have things in the desert in hangars that are 50 years beyond your wildest imagination. If you've seen it on Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth bothering. Do you think that that Ben Rich actually? I mean, whether or not he said those things, I mean, is it true? Do you suppose?
1: Well, you know, the military. We know they've developed a whole lot of things that you know that we don't have access to. That you know, you know, the the classic line that I hear is, "You're on a need to know basis, mm. and you don't need to know that." Right. Um, so when you talk about what they've developed, well. Stealth technology, um, that was something that started with the military. That was something that started, in fact, at Skunk Works, where they had the Blackbird SR 71 right. and its predecessor vehicles. Um, so when you talk about, is that possible? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they have a slew of things. You may have heard, you know, it's in the news right now because the, you know, fiscal year 2018 budget is threatening to cut it. Um, you might have heard about NASA's W First telescope. Mm -hmm. This telescope is basically uh the same body as the Hubble Space Telescope. NASA was approached by the US military a few years ago and basically said, Hey, uh, you know the Hubble Space Telescope? Well, uh we have a couple of extras of those. Do you want (laughs) to? And NASA was like, Yeah, of course we do. Well, That tells you that if the Department of Defense has two that they're just giving away to NASA, that leads you to believe there's probably more than two in orbit looking at things on Earth that scientists don't generally know about. So, um, yeah, I totally believe that the military has developed some really amazing technologies when they can spin them off and put them to good use in the world, they do. Sometimes when they choose to keep the technology a secret, they do that. I have no doubts that the military has developed a large number of technologies that, that we don't yet know about, because we've seen civilians use or develop technologies that we thought were impossible. You know, when you talk about Star Trek... I think about things like the holodeck and holograms. Yes. And those are becoming real. They have a they had a demo in Tokyo a few years ago where you could put on virtual reality goggles and a headset and you could hear the sound of dripping water and you could see falling, you know, electronic water drops. But the most amazing thing was if you put your hand out under them and you hit one in three dimensions, you know left right up down and forward backward if you got your hand under where that water drop was supposed to be yes they had infrasound sensors set up that you would feel oh that gosh. water drop splash whoop in your hand and it would actually feel wet wow. imagine that imagine a virtual like touch hologram that could mimic sensations like pressure and pain and temperature and itch and even wetness.
0: Oh my gosh, I was just, I think I was reading today about um, they're talking about within five years they could broadcast um, uh, basketball games, I don't know why they chose basketball, but uh, uh, um, as a holograph. I
1: wouldn't be surprised at all and probably basketball because it's impressive how many intricate movements you have all at once. Right. A, that would that would give new meaning to the marketing of you're not just watching the game, you're in the game.
0: That's right. Now not just Jack Nicholson gets to sit, you know, right on the floor and watch the Lakers play. What that's about f- right? Wait till they get a load of you <laughs> with your hologram. There you go. What about food replicators?
1: Oh come on! They just 3D printed the first pizza in zero gravity <laughs> aboard the International Space Station. <laughs> they get the cost down far enough, and you
0: uh,
1: supply them with the proper food stuff. You've got food replicators today with current technology, including in zero gravity.
0: Wow. Ethan, I could talk to you all night, and I wish we had all night. We are we are sadly out of time. I, I, I'd love for you to join us again sometime.
1: You well, just... I'm sure we'll find a way to make that happen. Uh, you guys know where to reach me, and I'll make sure to make myself available. This is a lot of fun for me, too.
0: Ethan, you're fantastic. And again, it starts with a bang. The science blog, just Google that, and the book is Trechnology great gift for anyone thank you again Ethan
1: thank you, it's my pleasure
0: my thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, and uh, Ryan White back next week with Cass Ingram, we'll talk about uh, the, the power of uh, wild oregano extract the wild oregano oil extract and uh, we'll also talk about Masonic architecture, should be a good one in the meantime, don't be afraid, there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Beat me up.